You may be seated. Again, as you know, we're going to be starting a series in the book of Daniel. By the way, that doesn't mean that every week we'll be in Daniel. We'll have to take a few side trips, both for topical issues and also we have missions month, things like that. Oh, by the way, junior church can be dismissed. <laughs> by the way, you want, you would like to, I'm encouraging you to find the book of Daniel. If you do find it, maybe you want to put your ribbon there, if you have a ribbon. Uh, probably about halfway through your book, you're going to find the, the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then you're going to come to Daniel. By the way, those five books I just uh, I quoted to you are uh, what we call the major prophets. Then you have a bunch of minor prophets after that. Let me say this, it's not because the minor prophets are less valuable, it's just that they're shorter. But this is one of the major prophets. This is, in fact, this is the book when it comes to prophecy yet to be fulfilled. Um, many of the other prophets, well, Ezekiel is dealing with prophecy yet to be fulfilled, especially Millennium uh, Kingdom and Millennium uh, Temple. But here... Uh, God is laying out through the prophet Daniel, uh, really past history all the way up to the time of Christ, and then going into the time of Christ and what's going to be happening. So he gives the broad stroke, and we, you'll start to see this as we go through chapters, well, 1 through 12. But today we only really want to get to uh, the first two verses. By the way, just to remind you, as you're still maybe trying to find <laughs> the book of Daniel, um, Again, we do have our uh, business meeting right afterwards. Uh, as soon as I end in prayer, we, uh, you can make your way if you're going to be staying for the business meeting to the right-hand side, the south wing. They have uh, sandwiches, chips, watermelon, muskmelon, all that stuff. Uh, grab a plate, come back in. We'd like to start maybe within 10 minutes, thereabouts. Uh, we're going to be doing two major votes. One is on the building, a couple votes on that, and then we're going to be going to the second one which is the uh, associate pastor, the potential associate pastor. Uh, just again to remind you that uh, anything that goes to vote to this point means that the elders and the deacons are in agreement, are in full agreement with the votes, right? I mean, we, we wouldn't bring something to you that we were disagreeing with. So again, just to remind you of that, that... Um, you know, the things that you will be hearing about, the elders, the deacons, the building committee, the, uh, the uh, search committee, we've talked and prayed and sought the Lord's uh, direction, and we believe we are going down the, road, uh, the direction that the Lord would have, but we want to make sure that you also believe the same thing so we have a vote. So hopefully by this point you got Daniel chapter 1. Again, as you... Think about this day and age, and if, if you were just to walk down the streets of uh, Hornell or Almond or Alfred and struck up a com conversation with uh, some different people on the street, you know, what would be some hot topics that might come up in the conversation? Again, total stranger, but you just strike up a conversation. What might be on their hearts? I think one of the big ones would be something to do with the direction of our country or politics, or who is your man, who do you want to see voted in? You know, who's going to be leading this country in the future? Who is it going to be as of January? Another topic that is associated with these, these are all kind of together, is what massive changes are going to take place both in America and around the world in the next five years? Do you think changes are going to be happening? Yeah, probably very big changes. Another part of that would be, can a single election or a single leader make enough difference to truly change the direction of this country? Again, the events around the world are, that people raise are of interest to all of us as far as what is happening, not just in America, but what is happening in Italy and what is happening in Greece and what is happening in Russia and the big one, what is happening in Israel. You know, if, if there was one thing that we could say about our time frame, and it, it's always been true, but it seems to be accelerating, is the, is the word change. <laughs> Things are changing, and many times very quickly, and that's the front burner issues. And by the way, that's a great opportunity for us as a church and Christians, because even though I cannot tell you who's going to be elected, I can tell you the future, because Daniel... And Matthew 24 
And Revelation tells us the future, right? And you can too. We can know not only what has happened in the past and that it was ordained by God, but also what's going to happen in the future. So in that sense, we are, I mean, we are living on the edge. Only Christians who study the Word of God can truly say, we know what's going to happen. It's not an arrogant statement. It's not a proud statement. It's just the truth. And we're going to be studying, again, the first of, th- of three uh, parts that we're going to be breaking this into over the next few years. We're going to be studying the book of Daniel first, then probably touch on the Olivet Discord in Matthew 25, or 24 and 25, and then end in Revelation. Now again, as we approach the book of Daniel, and again, I hope you have your Bible. Okay, I know some of you have these iPads. Uh, that's fine too. I was just telling somebody who has an iPad, he, I said, you know, 10 years from now, I bet you everyone's going to have iPads. And then when his wife said, I'm not, I'm going to have a hard copy. Well, the point is you have the Word of God. I mean, you know, whether it's in the iPad form. The point is you want to see the text. You want to see the text. And as we come to Daniel, let's remember that this was written 2,500 years ago. Now, think about this. I'm going to try to do in your... Let's say, uh, you know, this is our present. Now, if you go back 2,000 years, it's the time of Christ, or 2,100 years. And then you go back, or 2,000, excuse me. And then you go back 500 more years after that, now, eh, about 600 is when the book of Daniel, that's verse 1, okay? So it's 25, 2,600 years ago. It's 605 is, is the actual time frame. But I just want to have you think of it this way, that we're here, the 2000s, uh, Christ, and then it's 600 years before Christ was born. Now, I was going to put, a, and by the way, as we get through this, you're going to see a lot more visuals. Today I thought, well, I don't want to complicate things with a, just a timeline, because that's all it really means. But just think of it that way. You have now 2012, 2,000 years Christ, 605 is the time of this writing. And and again, make sure we also, you know, it's uh, 2,000, 1,900, 1,800, 1,700, right? Zero, time of Christ, actually, now. And then it goes 1 B.C., 2 B.C., 3, 10, 100. And as you move from Christ into into the past, then it's, it get, the number gets bigger. So if you say 605 is actually a later date than 495. You know, we have to remember that, right? And all of you are saying, why are you bothering? Well, because sometimes you think, you know, you know what's, what's older? You know, uh, 125 B.C. or 605 B.C.? 605, the farther, the bigger the number, the farther away. So again, we're studying an Old Testament book written 2,700 years, 2,600 years ago. Now, I mean, just put that in the context of America. (laughs) We're only, what, 250 plus. I mean, well, you know, if you'd say as far as when they first came. But I mean, it's, you know, we're we're young. It's short time, short time. You know, before I even get into Daniel, I was thinking about this. We need to just make sure we are all in agreement as to what we hold in our hands. And that is the inerrant, sufficient Word of God. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, a very familiar, in fact, if you've ever been in our Juana Olympian, Word of Life programs, epic, whatever, you should have this verse memorized. Probably do. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Oh, by the way, I hope you kept your hand in Daniel, otherwise you're going to have a hard time. But, you know, think about what Paul is writing to Timothy and saying at that thing. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. The all Scripture he's referring to is the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't even been written yet. This was about 660 AD or 65 AD that this book was being written. It hadn't, the Bible, the New Testament, had yet not been canonized. In other words, they didn't know. And in fact, some of the books had not yet even been written, like the book of Revelation. And yet Paul was looking at Timothy, look at verse 15, and he says, uh, 
the verse before in that, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. He's talking about the Old Testament. And I just find this interesting that Paul tells Timothy in the Old Testament, it makes you wise for salvation. It is profitable for, and we'll get to that in a moment. But he's looking at the Old Testament. And this is what he says of the Old Testament. Anna, by the way, you would add the New Testament. Uh, This is not in your outline, but you might want to just jot these down. There's five things that we see in this verse. First of all, God's word is inspired because it says it's given by inspiration of God. That word inspired is theonutos. God breathed. But he doesn't mean this. Like the, like the, 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 the author John or Peter or Daniel uh, writes something down and then God breathes on it and then, you know, like authenticates it. Literally what he's getting at is that the word itself is breathed out from, the, from God. God himself is, i.e., the author. Okay? It's inspired by God. Scripture owes its origin and its content to God. Expired that way. You know, it's from God. In fact, interesting note, 3,800 times, 3,800 times in Scripture, the Bible says this, God said, or something like this, thus saith the Lord. Over and over, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of times. Thus saith the Lord. And so in Second Peter one twenty one, it says, Holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along literally by the Holy Spirit. So yes, did God use human instrument? Yes. Did, they, did he even use their own personalities? Yes, actually you see that. Uh, Paul writes a little different than Peter, writes a, di- a little bit different than uh, John Mark. But all of it is from God. That's what's amazing about the scripture. You see the personality of the author, human author, but it wasn't dictation, otherwise you would have uniformity. You see personality, which means God was able to even use their personality. I think that's very neat. It brings it, I mean, that's a great application for us. Even in our spiritual giftedness, he still uses you as who you are, as he is transforming you. But the first thing is God's word is inspired. Second of all, it is an errant. An errant, again, it is the truth. It has no error. It says all. Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All. So every part of it. Every part of it is inspired. Every part of it is an errant. There's no falsehoods. There's no mistakes. We're going to see this. By the way, there's been a lot of higher criticism, liberals, people who disagree with the Bible, that have attacked especially the Old Testament book, Daniel. That's why I'm telling you this. As we look at this book, we've got to make sure that we're saying it is inerrant, it is inspired, and we're talking about also the book of Daniel. It is inerrant, it is inspired. Therefore, if it's from God, of God, it's authoritative. In other words, what it says, I must do. (laughs) It's not like, well, you know, let's take a straw poll. (laughs) Straw polls don't mean anything. It's what it does say at the Lord. It's authoritative. It has authority over my life. It has authority over your life. Fourth word, it is sufficient. Because it says, and is profitable. In other words, useful, valuable. And he says, it's useful for doctrine, it's useful for reproof. I'm just reading the text. It's useful for correction and instruction. Now, now think about this. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament is made up of between a, a quarter and a third uh, prophecy. He is looking back to the Old Testament and he's saying, not only is it profitable for uh, bringing you to salvation, Timothy, it should be profitable for you to, for doctrine and for reproof. In other words, for the sanctification of your life, for the growing in Christ of your life. You should be able to go not only to the historical books of the Old Testament and the poetical and writings, but also to, even to prophecy. And that should, when you study prophecy, it shouldn't be just that you study some facts. It should be nourishing to your soul. And so let me just break these down. For doctrine is it lays the foundation for your life. That's what he's referring to when he says for doctrine. Reproof is it tells us when we go astray. The word of God is like that bony finger. Thou art the man. 
But you know what? Thankfully, the Word of God doesn't leave us with us being condemned and reproved. It corrects us. And literally, the word correction means make straight. It shows us how to climb out of the pit. And then it tells us how not to return to the pit, which is the instructions in righteousness. What? Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete. So what am, I, what am I saying? The Word of God is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient. But then look at the last part of verse 17. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's relevant. And as you see the book of Daniel over the next uh, you know, 15, 20 lessons, whatever, you're going to say it is so relevant. It is showing us how to live in a sinful world. It is showing us how to uh, survive and be godly in a world that is run by Satan, but actually ultimately run by God. So again, it's thoroughly equipped. The book of Daniel will tell us about ourselves. It will tell us how to change and grow to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. How to be a man or woman of character. And how do we deal with a wicked world, an evil world, uh, naysayers? This should, study should give you a greater peace and confidence in how to live in this chaotic world. If these things are not happening, if we just know a few facts, then I think I have failed. Because I'm not going in that direction. The Word of God doesn't go in that direction. The Word of God wants us to change and grow no matter what we're studying in the Word of God. I'll tell you why. Because the Word of God, and especially prophecy, does one major, major, major point. And that is, it will help us to have a greater understanding and a greater appreciation of our great God. That's why it's going to make us grow. That's why it's going to give us peace and confidence. Because we're going to see, starting with here, Nebuchadnezzar, how God is orchestrating everything for His plan and His glory. And the closer you get to know God, and the bigger He becomes in your life, then the problems of this earth grow strangely dim, right? The, the situations. So 2 Timothy, Paul is telling a young man, I've, I've tracked you. Old Testament brought you salvation. But again, even the Old Testament, again, obviously New Testament, this would apply to New Testament as well. But the Old Testament should give us doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction. If, since you're in 2 Timothy, just go over quickly to Hebrews 4. Let me show you one last thing that the Word of God does. It says, For the Word of God is living. 4.12 The Word of God is living. That's active. It's powerful. The, the literal word is energious. We get energy. It's energized. It's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. By the way, it's interesting you says two-edged because the Word of God both comforts the believer but also judges and condemns the underbeliever. It convicts the believer, but it also brings them out of the pit. You know, I mean, there's all these... The point of a two-edged sword, it can be used either direction. A piercing or a penetrating deeply to the division of soul and spirit and joint marrow. And a discerner, that word discerner is a critic. The Word of God is your critic. Isn't it? We go to the Word of God and it's our critic. It exposes what he just said. He penetrates. It's living. It's powerful. It discerns of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Oh, it's not just the external. It's the internal. It can penetrate and change the heart of a sinner. It can change his direction. In fact, John Calvin said, quote, No other writing can compare. And that's so true. And by the way, the world, Satan... Even your own flesh is going to want to keep you from this book because this is the book that can transform your life. But then he says in verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. Uh, uh, to the eyes of him. And that word open, I looked that up, uh, opened. Everything is open before him. It was used of two different situations. I mean, used in, the, in Greek writings for two different situations. The first one was of a wrestler. How many of you ever wrestled? Well, in this day and age, it was a little bit more brutal than this day and age. I mean, back here, it was a lot more brutal. Because a wrestler, in the end, would many times grab his, uh, his uh, opponent by the throat. And the point of the passage is open is, and the opponent had to look that the other wrestler in the eye. 
But you know, sometimes the Word of God does that to us, doesn't it? I mean, just literally that harsh. It grabs us. By the way, the context here is to unbelievers. But the Word of God grabs us and doesn't let us go. It has, we have to deal with what it says. The other, the other use of this word was used in a criminal trial. When they had a criminal and he was being uh, you know, interrogated in the prosecution and defense and all that, they would literally, uh, you know, he would be bound and he would have a knife that would be pointed right here and it would be strapped and the, the point of the knife would be just below, quarter inch below his chin. And the point was the point. The point was this. He could not look down. He had to stay up and look at the judge. Couldn't do that. It would cause pain. And so what is he getting at? To him who, who to whom we must give an account. The word of God comes into our life, points, and you cannot hang your head and say, I'm, I'm not going to deal with it. No, it... It, it forces us to deal with the issues of truth that are found in it. A.W. Tozer said this, The word of God was not given to us to make us intelligent sinners, but obedient and authentic saints. And again, I, I think of no better quote than as we move into prophecy than that. It didn't, he didn't give us the word of God to make us intelligent sinners, but obedient and authentic saints. So that's the book. Uh, in fact, I never even gave you the write-in. It's the introduction to the book. And when I mean introduction to the book, I mean the Bible. The introduction to the Bible. The second one is this, the authenticity of the book. And now I'm referring to the book of Daniel. And if you'd like, you can turn back to Daniel chapter 1. The authenticity or the genuineness or the reliability uh, I'm reading many of the commentaries. I have, I don't know, probably 10 or 12 uh, commentaries on the book of Daniel. But one of them is by David Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah, David Jeremiah uh, compares, the, in his little, cha- or little uh, paragraph on the authenticity, he kind of illustrates it like uh, a prosecutor. And saying how that there are so many people that have tried to disprove the book of Daniel. In fact, doing it this way. Uh, remember our timeline? Here we are, uh, time of Christ 2,000 years ago, and it really was written at 605 B.C. The liberals, the people who do not like the book of Daniel, who hate the book of, of the Bible, try to bring it from 605 down to about 165 B.C., make it y- younger. The reason they want to do that is this. If they can subtract those 450 years, the book of Daniel becomes not prophecy, but history. Because three of the four kingdoms mentioned would then be in the past rather than in the future. See, if you put it at 605, Babylon is now in power, and he still is going to be talking about uh, Medes and Persian, Greece, and the Roman. But if he can get it up to... 165, then that all just becomes history. Just Daniel is just telling you history. And so David Jeremiah says, you know, it's it's like a prosecutor trying to defeat the book. He puts it in those terms. But again, we want to make sure we keep to the proper time. This is prophecy, not history. This was written again at 605 B.C. When the uh, when the prosecution. Uh, Jeremiah writes, when the prosecution presents their case before the jury, they use, whether they realize it or not, the conclusions of a fellow by the name of Propriphy. He lived around 233. He wrote 15 books, and this is, he was, a, a, he was a, an atheist, and these are the, book, the title of the book he wrote, Against the Christians. So there was this polytheist that lived around 233, and again, he embraced many other gods, And he targeted Daniel. And and the the point of this is this. Even back then, they were trying to discount the book of Daniel. So we have to say, okay, how can we prove that this book and this man lived at this time? One is found in uh, Ezekiel 14, verse 12. Let's look at some of Daniel's contemporaries. For time, we'll just look at Ezekiel. This is what Ezekiel writes. He's a contemporary of Daniel. Uh, Ezekiel 14:12 The word of the Lord came to me again saying Now this is to Ezekiel son of man 
when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread and send famine on it. Even if these three men, these three who? Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would... They would deliver only themselves by righteousness, says the Lord. So actually, Ezekiel names Daniel. For time, you don't have to turn, but Ezekiel 28, verse 3, it says this, God is speaking to the prince of Tyre and says this, Behold, you, behold, you are wiser, or are you wiser than Daniel? So he, in other words, he mentions Daniel. That's the point. Ezekiel mentions Daniel. So we have some confirmation that indeed the book is authentic. You could go to archaeologists. Uh, one of the big uh, problems of the book has been this whole man named Belteshazzar. You find him in chapter 5. Because in secular history, it wasn't Belteshazzar that was the king of Babylon. It was a guy named Nabonidus. Nabonidus. So now there's this conflict. Daniel is incorrect. It's not inerrant. It's not perfect. But then a man came along a number of years ago named Sir Henry Rawlinson, and he discovered an inscription on a cylinder. Again, an archaeologist found a, uh, an inscription on a cylinder found in the Euphrates River, and he cleared up the problem. There were two kings of Babylon during Daniel's later life, a father and a son. The first, the father was Nabonidus, is N-A-B-O-N-I-D-U-S. He apparently occupied the stronghold around the city. And then his son, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, not Belshazzar, Belshazzar was his co-regent. And that's why, look at chapter 5, verse 29. It says, I think it's 29. Let me make sure this is correct. Yeah, where is it here? And at the end of the 12th... Oh, no, I'm in chapter 4. Now, that would be very hard to come by. Um, verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command that they, clothed, that they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be... Which, what is the number that you have there? That he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. You say, why would he give him to that? Because his father was first... Belshazzar was second and Daniel was the third. And so whereas the uh, skeptics and the liberals try to destroy out of this chapter 5 the, the, uh, the veracity of Daniel, and now all of a sudden, he, I mean, that's exactly why he said third. I, I, I just love it. I love it when a liberal will say, this is not, and then it's proved, no, this is exactly, not only is it uh, partially true, it's 100% true. Let me give you the star witness, though. Matthew 24, verse 15. Again, this is the star witness. This is Jesus Christ himself uh, self speaking about on the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, quote, spoken of, of by Daniel the prophet. <laughs> he not only names him, he says Daniel the prophet, not the historian standing in the holy place. So again, we have evidence that it is a prophet, not only because it's found in the scriptures, but from Ezekiel, from archaeology, and also from Christ himself. In other words, the authenticity of the book. It is authentic, it is true, it is 100% correct. And so as we, as we go through it, why is that important? Because we're going to be looking at individual names. We're going to be actually investigating, you know, not just the general overview, actually getting into the text. And I want you to know that every time we do that, this is exactly true. So we've looked at the book as a whole. We've looked at the, the truthfulness of Daniel. Now we look at the theme of the book. The theme, that's the third thing in your outline. The theme. The theme of the book. What is the theme? Well, it's written by Daniel. A good part of it is about Daniel. And we have different stories about Daniel and his three friends. By the way, don't you love praise? Human, humankind loves praise. We love to d display our trophies and our ribbons and our awards. I'm, kinda, I'm actually reminded of a story of Corey Ten Boone. 
She, uh, as she was receiving all her accolades for her book and the film that was done about her life, she started to have concern that, you know, I don't want to be lifted up. I'm just a servant. And she prayed about it, and God showed her a, a way of dealing with praise, and, and this is how it was, quote, a beautiful way of using the tributes and the accolades and the praise of people. Each one would represent a beautiful flower. And then at night, she would collect them in a beautiful bouquet and give them back to Jesus and say this, Here, Lord, they belong to you. I think that's a great way. You know, man may try to praise you, but are we willing to take that praise and bring it back to Christ? Now, these belong to you. Because as we looked at last week, what do you have that you did not receive? And you know what? Daniel does that here. Though it, the good part of it, I mean, you see him in his life, and he is, by the way, um, a very intelligent, capable He's a man of character and integrity. He's a leader. He's godly. He's dependable. He's loyal. And it's all in the context of ungodliness around him. I mean, there's much that you could say about Daniel. But you know what? You know what really comes out of the book? Not Daniel, but Daniel's God. The greatness of Daniel's God. That's what really shines in this book. That's the theme of this book. The sovereignty of God. The greatness of God. You see it right here in the first, uh, first two verses. It says, verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave. That's sovereignty. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar thought he uh, uh, beat the Israelites. He was the one that conquered Jerusalem. No, no, no. The Lord gave. Hey, how about uh, chapter 2? When Nebuchadnezzar's dream was interpreted, Daniel 2, look at, uh, this is what Daniel said in verse 37. Now again, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel interprets it. Who gets the glory? You, O king, are king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. He has given you power. He has given you strength. And he has given you the glory. So, I mean, you thought it was done by your own hands, but... Daniel was very clear. You are the number one man on this earth at this moment, but remember, someone put you there and it's God. Just remember, Nebuchadnezzar was a very wicked, conceited despot of a king. (laughs) I mean, there's a story, and we'll probably look at it sometime. He takes one of his prisoners and literally puts him on a spit and literally roasts him over a fire. That's how wicked this man is. And yet, Daniel says, listen, you are king of kings, but there is a king above you. Because your kingdom is only of this earth. How about Daniel chapter 4? If you go, again, I'm just trying to prove to you the theme is sovereignty of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God throughout the entire book. Uh, Verse 25. Now again, this is, he has a, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel now is interpreting it. This is the second time he interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. He says this, They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of the heaven. And seven times shall pass over you, seven years, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whoever he chooses. <laughs> You'd be like a cow. But just let me tell you, there's... You thought you were so great. In chapter 5, we were just there. To Belshazzar, he says this. Now this again, it would be, uh, Belshazzar would be uh, his uh, grand, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. This is what he says there. Uh, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, actually grandfather, I mean just in lineage, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. In other words, the the king did this. Not, it wasn't because of the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and now you're starting to see a pattern here. That Daniel is saying, you know what? In, when it comes to this earth, earth, God many times uses the wickedness of men to be his servant. See, we can't, it's hard for us to understand. How does the wicked survive? How does the wicked prosper? Daniel helps us to understand. No, God has used wicked people throughout the time of man. 
That shouldn't jilt our faith just because a wicked man or a wicked nation is in power. In fact, in the end of the book, well, actually in Isaiah, but we see Cyrus in chapter 10, but this is what he says of Cyrus, king of Persia. Again, Persia is the one that conquers Babylon. This is what God says. He says, God says of him, he is my shepherd. It's Isaiah 44, 28. He is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure. In other words, he is just my servant. Even that wicked king Cyrus of Persia. Gleason Archer, that great um, theologian, said this, quote, The principal theological emphasis in Daniel is the absolute sovereignty of Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. At a time when it seemed to all the world that his cause was lost, Jehovah's cause was lost, and that the gods of the heathen had triumphed, causing his temple to be burned to the ground, it pleased the Lord strikingly and unmistakably to display his all power, his omnipotence. The theme running through the whole book of Daniel is that the fortunes of kings and the affairs of men are subject to God's decrees and that he is able to accomplish his will despite the most determined opposition of the mightiest uh, kings on the earth, end quote. Yeah, and you know, as we... By the way, why does all this matter to me? Because we're coming to a very important election. And where is America going? And how is it... Let's just look at Daniel. 2,500 years ago, God is in control. In fact, as one man said, Christians should be the calmest people on earth. See, I've had to confess, and I've told you this. I'm pretty open about this. I used to be a political junkie. You know what's happening on Fox News? Who's he interviewing? Ah. And God is, I mean, I'm not saying, I want to be somewhat informed, but you know what? Don't find your peace there. Find your peace in the sovereign and the greatness of God. And his plan is being worked out. And even if a wicked man gets into office, by the way, both of the people that I see coming for election, I don't think either one of them is saved. So before God, they're both damned. Right? Is that true? You know, you don't stand before God righteous because you were president of the United States. In fact, at the judgment day, president of what? That's, by the way, write this down. I found it afterwards, but one commentator to describe the first two verses of this passage said this, man proposes, God disposes. That's true. So that's the theme. The theme is the greatness and the glory of God. That's why it can, that's why it can uh, give doctrine to us and reproof and correction and instruction and give us a solid foundation. Why? Because prophecy points us to God. That's the theme. And whenever you get into the Scripture, I would encourage you, let's make sure you're always looking for God. It's not just about information. It's about transformation. And fourthly, as we close, the timing of the book. The timing. Now, again, we're back to chapter 1. And this is really why you need to be in chapter 1. I know I only have about five minutes. The timing of the book. Again, it says, first, uh, the last few words of uh, verse 1, And Jerusalem came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jerusalem is besieged. The book of Daniel begins on a very sorrowful note by recording for us the first of three Babylonian captivities. The northern kingdom had already gone into captivity by the Assyrians back in 722. Now, again, I said this is 605 B.C., 722, so that's about 100 plus years earlier. The northern ten tribes had been captured by the Assyrians. So remind me to get a laser, because I've got to get this up there so I can do like my laser thing, you know, the little red dot. Because I need a map up here. But the point is, if you look at Israel, Assyria was up here, Babylon was down here. A hundred years before this, Assyria was the, the nation, the, the key nation, and they had destroyed the northern ten tribes. And now, at this very point, verse 1, Judah, the remaining southern kingdom, two uh, tribes, are going to be judged. Not by Assyria but by Babylon because of their unfaithfulness and disobedience to God. And the man who's going to do it is the king, is Nebuchadnezzar. Again, he was the ruler of that known part of the world. Okay? 
And there's going to be three. There's going to be, again, 722, Israel, northern ten kingdoms are taken away. 605, the first deportation. That's when Daniel gets taken. 597, what is that, about eight years later. Because, again, we're working towards the time of Christ. We're 5, 605, 597, a second deportation. That's when Ezekiel gets taken and, and a lot of the priests. And then 586, what is that? Uh, about 10 years later after that, the final deportation. And that's when everything is finally destroyed and Jeremiah is also taken. Jeremiah was left the first two times and Nebuchadnezzar comes back. We'll see that a little bit more. But the point is there's three deportations. This is the first of the three. Again, Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He is the king. And what he does is he basically leaves uh, Jehoiakim there. In other words, he conquers, but then he leaves him there as a puppet, a puppet king. What happens is, after a few years, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar is about 600 miles away into Babylon. So he comes into Babylon, he destroys, I mean, besieges it, takes it over, sets up this king who was already a king anyway in Babylon, Jehoiakim, leaves him there, and then two more times because they keep having little uprisings, he comes in, and finally in 586 he just destroys all of Jerusalem. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of questions we have to ask or answer that have been, were, were asked by the people of, of uh, Israel. I mean, are the chosen people are, are out of the land. The chosen people are no longer in Israel. And a wicked king has destroyed us. Who is Jehovah? And is there any plan for Israel? And what about the temple? And that's been destroyed. Do you see all the questions that are happening? And, and Daniel answers a lot of those. And the biggest of all is this. Is God done with Israel? And even to this day, a lot of Christians would say, Yes. And I want you to know, categorically, God is not yet finished with Israel because we see them in the, in, the, in the tribulation time. And even Daniel answers that question. So that's, that's where we are as far as context. And then finally, now two final questions. The f- other second one is this, Judah's warning. Had they been warned? Yes, when, when the, southern t- or the northern ten tribes were taken away, that was a warning. Then they were taken over. Not only besieged, because that was a process too, the... the the northern ten tribes. In other words, warning after warning. And then you can go to like Habakkuk. And there was a warning. He even said this, like, you know, Babylon is, is becoming powerful and he's going to be coming and he's coming. And they just, he kept sending prophets. I'm talking within the, the decade before this. Prophet after prophet telling, listen, either repent or God is going to judge. They had warning after warning. But then finally... He actually comes and he actually, Lord, gives Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. Now, I want to end with one final illustration of these two people. The people that are being played out right here, that is Jehoiakim, not Nebuchadnezzar. Although it is interesting, notice this, that Nebuchadnezzar not only took people, verse 3, but he took some of the best that was from the house of God. In other words, some of the the, uh, temple implements he took to his temple over in Babylon. And you say, well, why would they do that? Well, obviously for wealth reasons. I mean, it was gold. But the other reason was this. By taking something from the temple of your God and putting it into the temple of the heathen God, you know what that king was saying? My God is stronger than your God. Because I just took it from your temple and put it in mine. So really, it wasn't just about wealth. It was who is God. And even there, the people would be saying, look at that, he even took the implements. Must be God is done with us. And we'll see that in future weeks. But let's look at this guy, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, who is Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim is the grandson, no, is the son of Josiah. Now, do you remember who Josiah was? In uh, chapter... In, uh, excuse me, in 2 Kings chapter 22. Because there is such a contrast here. Josiah, who is Josiah? Josiah was the godliest of Judah's kings. It says in verse, uh, chapter 22 of 2 Kings verse 1, Josiah was 8 years old when he became king. But then 18 years into it, so now he's 26 years old. You know what they find? The book of the law, probably in the temple. A high priest finds it. 
And the question is, what is this young king, 26 years old, going to do with the book of the law? And the high priest in verse 8 says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Verse 11, now it happened. I'm in 2 Kings 22. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Humility, repentance. That's what it shows. Verse 13, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. So look at what he does in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring, excuse me, this is what the Lord said, I will bring calamity on this place. You've forsaken me, verse 17. You burn incense. All right, so what does he do? This is what he does. Actually, the testimony in verse 18. Thus saith the Lord of uh, God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, verse 19, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place. And look at this. And you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you. And he, and he says this. And, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. In other words, judgment will come, but it won't be coming in your time. And he goes from there. He brings it to the people. And they repent. And there's a great revival. And Josiah is the greatest Juden, uh, uh, king of Judah, uh, of the Judean kings. Young, he lived, what, 31 years? Now, 31 years. He, um, I, I figured this out, 640 to 609. In other words, about, well, 31 years. But, and the revival happened in 622. How many years are from 622 to 605? What is that? Uh, how many? 17 years. There's a great revival with Jehoiakim's father, Josiah. Great revival, protection, the people repented, and 17 years later is when we read that Nebuchadnezzar comes in and God has given over Jerusalem to this wicked Babylonian king. Because again, Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim. This is all I'm thinking. He never learned from his father. Here's this guy. By the way, and Josiah, you know who his grandfather was? Manasseh. And he was the most wicked of the kings. So, I mean, you have these wicked kings, and then you have Amnon, a wicked king, and then Josiah, this young king who was very, very godly. Revival happens in Judah. And then one of his sons is on the throne for three months. This is Josiah's. And he's taken off. And then Jehoiakim is replaced by, which is his brother. And now he... And you know what? He did not follow in the ways of Josiah, his father. When it comes to godliness, it has to be determined by you, not your parents. In fact, this is how bad it was. If you go to Jeremiah chapter uh, 36, Jeremiah is writing a, a scroll, basically a word from the Lord, basically the same type of scenario that was found in Josiah. Listen, you're a wicked people. You haven't obeyed me. You've got idols. You've got adultery going on and idolatry going on. And it, but if you repent... If you turn from your ways, I'll protect you, Jehovah says. He gives it to the priests, and the priests give it to the people, and they're excited. In fact, it says even the princes are excited. And then it finally gets to the king, Jehoiakim, this guy. And this is what it says. The king was sitting, verse 22. This is Jeremiah 36, 22. Now the king was sitting in the winter house. In other words, when the word of God came, he didn't stand, he just sat. Verse 23, and it happened when Judah, the priest, read three or four columns, you know, just got into it, didn't read the whole scroll, just got into it, just a little bit, that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, like his father Josiah had earlier done, the king, nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Isn't that sad? The word of God comes to the Father. He repents. The nation repents. They are protected. They are saved. By the way, I believe even as a nation like America, you repent, you walk with God, God will protect his son. His son gets a word from the Lord from the prophet Jeremiah. By the way, Jeremiah did not read that. You know why? He was in prison by this guy. 
In fact, Jeremiah says to the, to the uh, scribe, listen, you write it down and you're going to have to tell the king because I'm imprisoned. <laughs> and Jehoiakim looks at it. it. He doesn't get past two or three columns and he says, I don't want to hear it. In fact, give me that thing. And he just... <laughs> and it was gone. And God says, the gauntlet is down. And God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar because he was unwilling to repent. Where are you? (laughs) Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? That's the first and most important question. Are your sins, have your sins been placed on the cross and have you found forgiveness through Christ? But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I think the second and and, and very important question, because we're looking at people who said they were Christians, I mean, Old Testament saints. You have an illustration of Josiah who indeed did walk with God. Because when the word of God came, he saw it as inerrant and sufficient, and he submitted himself to it and all the different... But there's the other side, and I think sometimes this is even found in Christianity. We come to the word of God, it says something we ought to do, and it strikes our heart. But rather, it's just like with sun, rather than melting butter, it hardens like clay. And the word of God itself hardens the heart. Where are you at? Are you tender towards the word of God? Or has God been speaking to you and you're getting harder and harder because you are rejecting it? And if you find yourself hardened, just cry out to him and say, Lord, no, I want to have a repentant heart. I want to have a soft heart. I want to have a teachable heart. Is that where you are? I trust that's you. Let's stand as we worship him. Again, just to remind you, we're going to have our business meeting, uh, hopefully within about 10 minutes, maybe a little bit later than that. But if you're going to be staying, to go right to the right-hand side. I mean, again, no rush. We get your food and come back in. If for some reason you cannot stay, you want to vote, find Mike Stewart. He has uh, absentee ballots. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that indeed you are the God of gods, the Lord of lords. You put people in the positions of authority. Lord, again, we thank you that uh, even as we looked at Nebuchadnezzar, he thought he was controlling life, and yet you do. Uh, Father, remind us of these truths throughout this entire election season. I know you've, Lord, reminded me many times that I need to have my trust and faith and hope in you. Father, again, remind us of these truths so that indeed we would be the calmest of all people because we are just... calmly assured that you are in control. Lord, help us to uh, be students, to look at the nuances of Scripture and to find in them hope and that our lives would change for your glory. So, Lord, we just ask a great blessing on our lives as we study this book of Daniel. And, Lord, now as uh, many of us will be coming back in and eating and, and voting, I pray for unity. I pray that you would even bless the food that we are going to eat uh, so that we might be able to use it for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.